Welcome everyone to Between the Lines, everything your medical school didn't teach you about health equity. My name is Andrea Martinez. I'm a second year medical student here at SUNY Downstate. And I'm Anjali Jamin. I'm a fourth year medical student. So we started this podcast as students in White Coats for Black Lives to hear the experience of marginalized communities that are often ignored in our medical education. We're inviting community organizers and those active in our community. And today we're inviting Carla Rabinowitz to discuss safer, more compassionate models for responding to mental health crises. So Anjali, before we get started, I will admit that I'm feeling a little bit awkward about how we currently address mental health in just our medical terminology. How do you think we should proceed? Yeah, so in medicine, we're really moving away from kind of a illness-centered language to a patient-centered language. So we would say something like person living with a mental health condition, but that's also still a very medical description of, of somebody's lived experience. So people use all sorts of words to describe themselves and what in medicine we call mental illness or mental health conditions. So I think we just to be aware of that and that as providers and future providers, we have to be really aware that labeling is super dangerous. When we label someone with anxiety in their medical record, that's not a benign label. It can have long-term consequences. So I think just being aware of language and making it patient-centered for now is what we, we should be thinking about. Yeah, and we'll try throughout the podcast to make sure that we're taking into account how language affects patients and patients' lives. Going right into it, I'm kind of curious as to why you chose this topic as the topic of our first podcast. Can you tell me like what went into making that decision? Yeah. So around two years ago, a man, a black man living with a mental health condition was murdered by the police in our neighborhood. His name was Saheed Vassell. And this was someone who was well known to the community. He went to the local barbershop. He went to the church. People knew him. Even the community police in the precincts knew him. And yet he was murdered when people called 911 on him because they thought he had a gun, which it was not a gun. We responded to that. We were out in the streets with the community protesting. But it's since then really led me to think a lot about what is our role as providers and future providers? How do we intersect with the policing system and that kind of system of violence and the way it acts against people who are in crisis? This happened before I even came into downstate. So there's a lot of history in downstate that I'm missing about a lot of things. And there's a lot of history also in the United States that I'm missing. So we both read a brief history of the criminalization of mental illness. And I was just wondering, what were your thoughts and like what, how we got here to where we are today? I thought the article was really helpful and it really set up the history in a way that I could understand how mental health care has been provided in the United States for the last 150 years. I thought it was interesting. So it started in large scale with Dorothea Dix, who was basically a social reformer in the United States, who visited a Massachusetts jail in the 1840s and found that a lot of people who were being locked up were people who had mental health conditions. And she basically went on a mission and went around state by state to try to persuade lawmakers that the state should provide treatment and institutions for people living with mental health conditions. But 
what ended up happening was they tried to mimic a model that was available to very wealthy people at that time, which was sort of like a rest center. So it was like in the countryside, it was beautiful. It was for a short-term stay so you could kind of recover yourself and there was activities and meaningful work for, available to people. So they tried to implement that and basically led to an explosion of state-sponsored institutions for people. Seeing how there are no such institutions nowadays, I'm going to guess that something went wrong or what happened wasn't what we exactly envisioned. So can you tell me how what went wrong to begin with and how this eventually became a tool of oppression for those living with mental conditions? I wouldn't say they don't exist. They still exist. They just hold very many fewer people. And I'm sure they're, they look really different from the way they looked 100 years ago or even 50 years ago, but they're still inpatient psychiatric ward. They're state, still state institutions. One thing that was happening at that time was, and continues to happen, is basically that psychiatric diagnosis is used as a tool of oppression, right? We know that. We know that women were being sent by their husbands just because they wanted a divorce. We know that eugenics rose up and there was this idea that you really need to separate people who had so-called disabilities or intellectual disabilities. And so they were, se they were segregating like young children, even against their parents' wishes in these state institutions. And there people were facing sterilization. They were facing horrible treatments, they were facing neglect and abuse. And that was kind of the state of affairs for a really long time in state institutions. So I imagine that when all of these atrocities came to light, people did not take it, take it well. And there was some sort of outrage. Was this the beginning of the end of institutions like yeah, this? Yeah, I mean, there was a couple of reasons why these institutions kind of faded away, although they have not died, is there was a lot of negative press. There were these major cases of widespread abuse that was coming to public attention. One place that we can think about is Willowbrook, which was here in Staten Island. And actually my uncle was there. Um, I had my mom's littlest brother uh, was there and he actually died there at, at seven years old. And it's something that until we started kind of like thinking about this podcast, I hadn't really thought about the story that the family tells is that he was sickly and died. But thinking about the abuse that I know now know happened at Willowbrook, which was kind of almost un unimaginable, the condition kids were living in and many kids died. So now, I, I mean, I need to go back into my family history and understand that. But some bad stuff was happening at Willowbrook, including medical experiments that were happening on kids. Kids were basically being fed feces to give them hepatitis. And that's how we kind of learned where hep A came from. Those were just one of the things, but there were a couple other things that were happening at the same time that led to deinstitutionalization. One was that in 1953, I think the first antipsychotic was discovered and that was Thorazine. So people started getting really optimistic that you could treat mental health conditions with medications and people didn't need to be institutionalized. And then another thing that was happening was that this was happening in the context of the civil rights movement and the idea of kind of unilaterally depriving people of civil rights started to seem unjust or inhumane, right? Whereas before it was kind of like anyone could be hospitalized against their wishes. They started, the government started having specific criteria to hospitalize people against their will. That was the U.S. government's draft act governing hospitalization of the mentally ill in the 1950s, I think, or 60s. 
And that really laid out the two criteria that we still have, which is if there's a risk that you might hurt yourself or other people, you can be institutionalized against your will. And then the second thing is if you are unable to make decisions, good decisions for yourself because of your mental health condition, you can be institutionalized against your will. And this is much more subjective in a way. I mean, both are subjective. So in that article we read, there was this process of deinstitutionalization. What was supposed to happen? What was that imagined to be like? I mean, we were supposed to replace these asylums with community-based health. So instead of having all of these state institutions where patients didn't know anyone, where it was mostly very medicated, where there was a lot of abuse, they were supposed to be community-based healthcare. But this was like just, like you said, a proposal, and these were not fully funded. So what we see now is that all of these people who were supposed to have some sort of care were lost in the cracks. And institutionalization in 1955 was 550,000. And then it went down to 45,000 by the end of the 21st century. This is not because mental illnesses were cured. And also not because we somehow are providing great care based in the community. Yeah, this is like when the numbers lie, like we probably saw this as a success, but in fact, we were just ignoring the problem. So people in general aren't getting care based in the community. Who's most at risk for this? Hispanic and Black Americans have less access to mental health care. They're less likely to receive care. And if they are going to receive care, they are more likely to receive poor care. So all of these conditions just exacerbate the state of mental health care in Black and brown communities. And there's also the added aspect of provider discrimination, where bias and stereotyping play a role in how a physician or provider is going to perceive the severity of the mental health of the patients. So let me ask you a little bit. So we're medical students. We really learn about mental health only in the context of the medications, essentially. What's the problem with the medicalization of mental health? Going back to just the history, we thought that Thorazine was going to solve mental illness. And then it was only one aspect of a full lived experience. We're now seeing sort of like disease mongering where we are treating normal life experiences. So we're medicating children who have problems uh, with attention. And I don't want to say that these conditions don't exist because I also don't want to erase actual medical diagnoses. But a part of me wonders how much of this should be treated with medication and how much of it should be treated with just interventions of therapy or investing in communities so that children have more teachers or more child care. And another part is also money, of course, like there's money to be made from giving patients drugs. So people should have access to care, which I mean, there should be equal access to care, but we should also, as providers, really be thinking about expanding the options of what care means, right? Instead of just prescribing someone a pill and being like, all right, you're done. Exactly. We don't, we, for hypertension, we don't say, okay, here's this pill. You have to change absolutely nothing in your life. Keep doing what you're doing and then expect results. We do always go for lifestyle changes first. Well, we're supposed to. <laughs> but I think like now we should get into also, since today's podcast is about police intervention in mental health crises. I'm mostly wondering how we came to consider 
this vulnerable, marginalized community as dangerous to us. Yeah, I think it's something that we can really see in the reactions to people who are living on the street, right? Or people who are in crisis, the way that strangers interact with them. We also see it in the in the hospital when someone comes in who's in crisis, who's been brought in by the police or by the by EMS. The way that doctors interact with this person is as potentially dangerous, needing sedation, needing to be restrained. You know, they tell medical students, step back in case you get hurt, right? So there is this perception that there could be there's danger. And I think that really needs to be questioned, right? We know that we know that there's a really high rate of people living with a mental health condition who are incarcerated. But why is that? We really need to question that. We know that most people with a stable mental illness don't present with an increased risk of violence. And we know that people really face barriers to receiving care that might keep them out of crisis. But we also know that, for example, the war on drugs has contributed to this. We know that people living uh, with mental health conditions often have comorbid addiction issues, right? We know that there's increased presence of police in high-risk neighborhoods. We know that there's like a tough on crime kind of idea that happened in the 80s that kind of really led to mass incarceration and that has affected these things. We know that people living with mental health conditions are often living in poverty because they lack the appropriate, you know, state and community support for living with mental health conditions. And so we know that 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 poverty itself is connected with incarceration wrongly. Right? So th these are all reasons. I think one other thing that we can talk about is we know that this is also intersectional with racism. There's a double jeopardy. And so we know that black and brown people are more likely to be untreated for mental health issues. And then we know that the police are more likely to target black and brown people. So today we're really lucky to have Carla Rabinowitz, who's the project coordinator for the Correct Crisis Intervention, that's CCITNYC. She's also the advocacy coordinator at Community Access. Carla works as part of this coalition to challenge the current police-led response to individuals in distress and discuss safer and more compassionate alternative models for responding to mental health crisis. I'm really excited to have her here today. So let's just jump right in. Carla, can you tell us a little bit about your personal story and what brought you to the work that you do now? I'm doing very well now in 2020, despite the coronavirus. But I want to say from 1996 to 2001, I was one of those people you see on the street running and screaming. I was chasing after kids. I was very, very sick. I was in a full-blown mania for about three years in and out of hospitals. You know, one time my mother had to call police on me because I was in the apartment, you know, shouting and screaming and breaking things and um, doing a hammering project on the table, on a glass table. So she had to call police and she opened the door and then she closed the door. She said, don't go out. And I went out and there was about 16 police officers there. Now, fortunately for me, nothing happened to me, but that was not healthcare. That was not somebody trying to help me. Fortunately, I was just handcuffed, nothing terrible. Yet so many other people I had talked to in my mental health advocacy world had explained to me how they were, you know, rolled into a bag and beaten up and just terrible things from the police. Thanks for sharing that with us. So as medical students, we often see people who are in crisis once they're already brought into a hospital setting. 
we were wondering if you could paint a little bit of a scene for us. What happens that causes police to get involved? Who's calling? Oftentimes it's uh, a neighbor, a relative, often a parent, an adult kid calling on their parents. And the person, they have let the situation go because the person in distress doesn't want to go to a psychiatric hospital because the word is out that the psychiatric hospitals will cause you to be locked up small rooms, no phones, no personal space, nothing good. It's not like being in a regular hospital for a heart attack. So the person in crisis doesn't want to go to the hospital. At some point, it gets to be such a crisis, and there may be threats of violence, often threats of violence, even if the person doesn't mean it, that the relative calls 911 to take the person to the psychiatric hospital. And once that call is placed, how does the 911 operator decide, is this going to police? Is this going to EMS? How does that process work? I don't know if this is working, but this is on paper what's supposed to happen. The crisis call goes to the leader, the captain of the precinct where the call is coming from. The captain is supposed to quickly find officers who've been trained in CIT and dispatch them. There's also a very small contingency of what's called the emergency service unit when a person is in mental health crisis, but the violence level is high. They call the emergency service unit, who, by the way, got some training, but they didn't get the training where there's interactions with people in mental health concerns. So it's all messed up. I do want to say that the mayor just announced a pilot project where he would send emergency service units and clinicians in some cases. Look, it's a good first step. He's moving in the right direction. Our problem with this pilot project is that it would go through the 911 system. And you are relying now on those 911 operators trained by police to send it to the health team response which we've seen in the past, hasn't worked. They, police had a project in Staten Island where they were going to send social workers instead of the police, but it failed. And I have a feeling it failed because the 911 operators default to send police when there's anything that could be considered a weapon, a butter knife, a fishing hook, you know, just from cases I've heard. So I remember, I think like two or three years ago in Brooklyn near our school, Saheed Vassell was murdered by the police. And I think there was like a lot of discussion at that time around there being this idea of community policing and community police having relationships with people in the community and knowing who a local fixture who's not dangerous. What goes wrong in that kind of situation? I mean, I think what went wrong in this situation is that one is a police problem, one is a mental health community problem, right? So Saeed still wasn't getting the mental health services he needs. People had known him to be a person who was not doing well at times. So why wasn't that being answered? Listen, medication is not always the answer. And even if you have medication, you need other things. But why wasn't he connected to the mental health community? He was connected to his community, but why wasn't he around other mental health recipients who could have said to him, hey, Saheed, I think you're not doing well today. Maybe you got to you know, call up your doctor. I live in a cocoon and I'm so lucky that I not only work for a housing agency, we help people with mental health concerns. I have this whole mental health community around me. There's this whole broad community in every borough of people and clubhouses and art programs. The other is a policing problem. I just don't think police are the answer. We want to see a health team response that focus on the whole person, not just he's waving an object now, he's sick, let's de-escalate it. But hey, Vasil, what do you do during your day? Do you go to any clubhouse? 
Ava, so do you know there's like 20 people a block away who meet every day to talk about substance use or what, whatever it is, you know? That's not something the police can ever do. So in a traditional response to a person in crisis, the police often show up because there's a concern that there might be violence, even if there probably won't be. What is supposed to happen for someone in crisis once they're in police custody? So unfortunately, the police, as is written in their protocol, are supposed to take someone to the hospital. They handcuff them, they take them to the hospital. And this doesn't make any sense for a lot of the 200,000 calls the city gets, right? That in and of itself is a problem. But the whole idea of having law enforcement respond to a health issue, it just doesn't make any sense. You want to be treating the person as a human being and getting them health care. In Queens, New York, there's a very small program with a peer and a clinician And they go around the Creedmoor Hospital, people who have urgent calls from clinics and housing providers, they can't handle the attention level. This small car goes out and calms people down, gets people connected to a new doctor, maybe a new therapist, but, you know, at their home, take them to a drop-off center somewhere, maybe take them to the respite center in Queens. They were successful 97% of the time not having to take the person to a hospital. That's the kind of care we need. But you can't get care in a police car. Even if you teach them de-escalization training for 36 hours, that's 36 hours of training when they've had four years of training of looking for crimes, trying to do things by force. That's what they're trained to do. The way the mayor is substituting the EMS, the emergency service unit, he's getting EMS involved when they're very friendly with the police and on we'll likely call the police. Our model calls for a peer and a private EMT from the community where the pilot is being run. So the whole idea is when you're responding to someone in a health crisis, you have to show concern. You have to care about the whole person and not see it as a crime in progress. So you've talked a little bit about some of the harmful effects of coupling policing with really poor mental health care. How has your thinking about police reform evolved over time? So I was probably one of the most pro-police people in my coalition. Even though I had things in my past where the police didn't treat me so well, I was always, always so hopeful that we could educate them, that we could teach them, that we could interact with them and make the situation better. The CCIT coalition had first, a little early, early, early on, thought the idea was to train the police, give them 36 hours, maybe we can teach them to be compassionate and show them the right way to respond. Well, it didn't work because that's not what police do. The training started in June 2015. From June 2015 to June 2020, 16 people that we know of were killed in a police encounter. Less than half were killed when there was no training. More than twice as many were killed in a less period of time after the training. So the training doesn't work. The police are not meant to respond to healthcare. They're not going to give healthcare. The best option you can have with a police encounter is you go to the hospital unharmed in handcuffs. And the worst encounter is you get bruised. And then the even worse encounter is you get killed. You know, why are we sending police for healthcare? It's like sending um, an auto mechanic to do heart surgeon. It's not the same job. My thinking just evolved over time. In 2016, we wanted to get away from police response People in crisis and color have an even worse time with police. So it's scarier for families of color. 
my views have been confirmed from what, what I saw with the protesters on the street. I mean, I'm so grateful for those young people on the street who are protesting the deaths of George Floyd and other people of color because it brought to the issue not only the violence against people of color alone, but also people with mental health concerns. So can you talk a little bit about this model that you've just mentioned, CAHOOTS? CAHOOTS started with the Whiteberg Clinic in Eugene, Oregon. They started with EMTs that they hired and crisis counselors. They don't need to be clinicians. They don't need to be peers. They trained the crisis counselors for, I want to say, three to six months in the field. And the EMT and the crisis counselor go in a van. They stay in that van all shift. And they respond to urgent calls. So how it works in Eugene is they, they were taught the police lingo on the radio. So they can just call into the police department now and say, this is Cahoots car number three. I'm taking this call. And the dispatcher says, fine, this is where you go. That is very closely aligned with the police. There are other places that are not so aligned with the police. So San Francisco has a peer, an EMT, and a clinician now responding. Toronto, I think, has a peer and an EMT. Portland has a peer, a clinician, and an EMT. And Los Angeles just passed a bill, the city council in Los Angeles, to have a peer, an EMT, and a clinician. We want a peer and an EMT, but we want it not to be run by like Thrive New York City or DOHMH. If the money goes to New York City Department of Health and Mental Health, you're fine. But it has to go to a community group like the Red Hook Justice Center or an anti-violence program that lives in the community and the van is provided by the city. And then we want the telephone number not to be 911. This is very, very important. A lot of people won't call 911 when you need a mental health team. And I don't think 911 is going to be able to move the calls to the mental health teams. I just don't think it's within them. So we want a private hotline number. And that's what we want. What we have now is the mayor just announced today is going to do a pilot project of emergency medical services who are within you know, the NYPD realm, and they will have a clinician. So I know the mayor came up with this plan to have the emergency medical service and clinicians respond, but I fear it's going to be the same old, same old, take someone to the hospital where they'll get doped up on medication and then the medication side effects will make them feel sick and then they'll get off the medication and then they'll take them back to the hospital. At the minimum, at the very minimum, we want to peer in there. We want someone who's going to look at the whole person. We want someone who's not going to say, oh, needs to go to the hospital, needs medication. That's it. That's the end. Because then the person gets out and gets off the medication. We need someone who's going to say, where are the resources in the community? You know, where's maybe they're low on food in their kitchen? Where are the food pantries that you go to? Maybe they have foot care. They need a health clinic. Maybe they need a therapist. You know, to resolve those kind of issues rather than just moving them to the hospital, which is not going to solve anything because they're going to get right back out. So I'm starting to really see your vision here, which is part of what you're saying is you need peers, but you also need it to be community-based because if it's not, there's just no way that a huge city like New York City, where there are social services and community-based organizations across five boroughs, there's no centralized power that could create a referral system for someone who needs foot care. Yeah, community-based group to do the hiring. And um, and if there's support from peer organizations, for peer organizations to do the training, that's great. In the mayor's model, he has Health and Hospitals Corporation doing the training to the emergency service unit. That's a joke. They're going to tell them hospitalized people, they're hospitals. 
So we know this is going to be just moving people to hospitals and then they're going to get out and then the family's going to call 911 again and then they're going to get in and then they're going to get out. No solution because you don't have people who care about the person, as you said, and, and it's going to give them community resources. So what you're saying is that the mayor's model is really very much a medical model. Yes, exactly. It's an EMS. It's a clinician. It's plugging directly into our public hospital system. Yes. And it's not talking about mental health care within the community context at home. Exactly. So I guess I'm wondering, you've kind of described a little bit about the context right now in New York City. You guys are proposing this project that's really like a peer-driven, community-based, separated from 911 pilot program. And the city has now kind of responded to some of the pressure from protesters and from organizers and they're trying to propose that there's a medical model. I'm wondering where do the police fit in? What is their response to these ideas? So we had talked to some police members, one privately and one publicly. They do not want the police department responding to these calls. They just don't. I talked to the captain of a precinct. I'm not going to out him. He said, you're going to take these calls away from us. He was like elated. He was like, great. I talked to a chief. She was like, we're working on it. Yes, I agree with you. We do not want the police department to take these calls. I think that the police department is moving to the point that they know that they don't have the right manpower to do these calls. And once again, I am like the most positive, hopeful person there is, even with all the police brutality you see. I know some people went into police departments to do good work, but they're not healthcare providers. So you're saying that police in general might be supportive of this because they they know at this point kind of that they're not equipped to handle these calls. In the total volume of calls to 911 that involve police, it is a large number. And eventually that should mean cutting the funding of the, of the police department. I mean, of course, a police chief is not going to say, you know, I'll get rid of 10 manpower man. But in terms of redirecting the calls and not having to answer these calls, they are happy for that. But for the city, that's kind of like a catch-22 because it's like the police budget is so huge. And now there's another program that's going to be totally separate. And it's not going to even take away funding from that budget that needs to be. I hear what you're saying. And I know everyone says this when they have their program. But this is like really a cost-saving measure because in our pilot where we have full-time 24-hour-7 in two precincts, which is bigger than neighborhoods, the whole total budget for a year is $3.3 million. I know one private civil rights attorney who works in the area of civil rights claims against the police. A third of her cases against the police are for people with mental health concerns. She's just a private solo petitioner. The city doles out a million a year just for those cases. So all we need is three attorneys like that, and it pays for itself. You hear about the 16 murders, but you don't hear about the people who got beaten up, punched in the eye, you know, all those lawsuits add up. That's a lot of money. We had asked a comptroller to look at the actual cost of doing nothing. And they weren't really able to pull it all together. But it's not only the cost against the city for the lawsuits. It is having 16 officers show up at your door. It is the cost of ambulance transport. It is the cost of a court case. All those costs are so much money. So I think in the end, by having the police moved out of that area, the city will see that it's saving money. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars a year on police misconduct. 
I guess I'm wondering, you had mentioned or last conversation we had that there is some pushback from some police abolition groups. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about what you perceive the source of that tension. Yeah, I mean, there's some groups like CPR who are total abolition, don't want police involved at all. They haven't been working in the area of mental health, but they got into mental health. In our model, the calls go to a mental health hotline. If you call for a mental health team, you get a mental health team. And then the mental health team can call police in a very, such a small number of cases. If the person is taking action to harm the person at the time, threatening serious and imminent bodily harm, or they're wielding a weapon, you know, at the point of attack. We thought we had it crafted in such a way that no one would get mad, but they got mad at us. And they're like, no, you mentioned the police. You can never have the police. And what their point is, is once you mention the police, the police will take it over. And I understand that, but to have a realistic program, you have to have a setup for when that mental health team feels they need a police officer. In Cahoots, in Eugene, Oregon, they called the police 0.6% of the time. In Queens, in transitional New York, they only transported the person 3% of the time to a hospital. So even less, maybe 1% to 2% they call police. You're talking about 200,000 calls and you can get police involvement down to one to 2%. I think that's phenomenal. But if you're an abolitionist, you can't support that plan. And if you can't support that plan, you're not gonna get the community support. You're not gonna get the city council support and you're not gonna get it funded. And that's my real problem with it is like, okay, if you wanna be an abolitionist, that's fine. But right now people are getting injured and killed and we need to solve this right now. So we were talking about how they're not obviously going to want their budget cut. Are you saying that there might be cost-saving measures? Because, for example, a big part of the police budget is police overtime. So if you just have fewer police officers showing up to a crisis response or no police officers, you might end up actually decreasing the budget. I mean, as a coalition, we support redirecting funds. We don't want to abolish the funds. We're not an abolitionist group. So yeah, definitely. If we take the work away from the police, there'll be, there won't be 16 police officers showing up at somebody's door. Good for the person and good for the budget. This is the end of part one. Please join us in part two for a continuation of Carla's interview, as well as a discussion between Anjali and me about what we've just learned.